0: continuing in our Hebrews passage and our Hebrew series, but we just read something from the Old Testament, which has a lot to do with the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews is all about things that we see in the Old Testament. So one thing that a great old preacher said is he said, a lot of the book of Hebrews is lost on us who are not Jewish Christians, or those who are not of Jewish descent, or those who don't have a Hebrew background because there's so much richness wrapped up in these verses. There's so much history that is wrapped up in these passages that each passage of Hebrews is just deep. It can can be seen as endless because of how much is contained in these verses. So that being said, we just looked at a passage that um, has some very weird significance. It's known as the Abrahamic covenant, right? So this particular passage, and I'm actually going to turn back here because there's a verse that I want to lean back in. So if you could, our, our text for today is going to be Hebrews 9, 15 through 22. But turn back to that Genesis passage because there's something I want to pull out of there before we move on. It's a major point, and I think it will help us understand how everything else, it'll help us understand what we're looking at just a little bit better. So that's Genesis 15. Logan, stopped at verse um, 15, but we're going to read it all the way to the end just to get some more. And thank you so much. I know I threw that curveball at you, you know, at the last minute, but thank you for being flexible in Jesus. Uh, All right. So Logan stopped at uh, 15. I'm going to pick up at 15. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in the good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. I'm gonna read that verse again. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. From the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girishites, and the Jebusites. That is a very interesting passage, and I pulled that out because I love this verse because it teaches us something that is crucial to understand. We're in Hebrews chapter 9. So now turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. But as you're turning, you're still listening. Thank you. So Hebrews 9 uses this word covenant. We've been looking at covenant. And what you see happening between Abraham at the initiation of the Abrahamic covenant, which was basically when God appeared to Abraham, who was a man from nowhere, from Ur of the Chaldeans, he appeared to Abraham and he said, hey, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to take you, and from you I'm going to make a and mighty nation. I'm going to give you more land than you can count. As many stars as there are in the sky, so shall your descendants be. And what we remember about the covenant with Abraham was Abraham was very old and was also infertile. His wife was very old and also infertile. And so this was an impossibility for him. But well, God said all things are possible through him. And so for Abraham, this impossibility became a reality. And when God makes his covenant with him, we get a picture of what covenant always means and covenant looks like. He tells them that three, these animals that are three years old, and what you're going to do is you're going to split them in half. Pretty gross. Cuts them in half and lays them, one side half on the left, one half on the right. And Abraham falls asleep. And in the midst of his sleep, he wakes up at one point, and he sees a flaming torch and a pot. Now, see, when you made a covenant, what that represented is when you laid the carcasses in half on the ground, you would walk between them. And whatever your promise was, you would say, if I don't keep this promise, may what happened to these animals happen to me. May I be cut in two, may I be torn asunder, may I be ripped apart. May something evil and terrible and awful as what happened to these animals befall me. And that's what it meant to make a covenant. It was an unbreakable battle. So the interesting part that happens is Abraham falls asleep, but he sees something moving through the eye. God was carrying the torch and the pot through the eye. And I believe that God makes that covenant with us where he walks through the eye and not you, because God is trying to show us something that we are not able to keep the covenants that we make. And so the strength of God's covenant with us is that he carries the bigger part. He carries the heavier load. When God walked through that aisle, he said, this strength of this covenant is going to rest on me. Abraham, you may not be able to keep your part, but I will. I'm going to carry the weight of this covenant. And we see this happening in this story. With Abraham, and that's the good news of being a Christian, and that's where we come to Hebrews chapter nine, verses fifteen through twenty-two. Is have that picture of covenant in your mind that God is carrying the heavy weight, He is doing the heavy lifting. One time we were um, when uh, I had to go back to Jersey City to help my mom move, and we were moving into a different apartment. And she was moving into a different apartment, and we were carrying a refrigerator up the stairs. And so we're carrying this fridge, and I don't even know how my mom, my brothers and I, were carrying it. My mom happened to be behind us, and as we were carrying the fridge, it slipped out of our hands. But the fridge didn't move. It was way up in the air on the stairwell, and we happened to look down, and my mom was holding the fridge up on her back. She was doing the heavy Lift. It freaked us out in the moment. But it's a picture that someone was doing. They had it slipped out of my hands, it slipped out of my brother's hands. And mom caught him on her back. That's crazy. She doesn't lift. So you know. Probably couldn't do that again today. This was many years ago. But it was an incredible moment where they still, you know, those mothers that had their super strength where they lift up cars to get their children. But it's a picture of the fact that it slipped out of my hands. It slipped out of my brother's hands. And somebody else did the heavy lifting. And that's the picture. So when we turn to Hebrews chapter 9, and we get to this next set of verses, the text that we're in, we come to our passage for today. And it says these wonderful words. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, those two verses are very significant. I was talking to Logan last night, and I was like, what are you getting out of, you know, this Hebrew series? And he's like, it's a lot of blood. We have been talking about something that is very precious and very important in this section of Hebrews. We have been talking about the blood of Jesus. The wonderful, precious, holy, sanctified blood of Jesus. And I was raised in the Baptist church. We used to get excited about the blood. We would jump up and down and run around a little bit when you talk about the blood and sing songs about the blood. I know lots of old hymns about the blood. Because the blood is precious. It really is. And one of the things that it made me think of is today in our culture, blood is not a precious thing to us. I thought of the fact that I like bloody movies. I love movies where I'm entertained by blood. And as I was in the shower thinking about the preciousness of blood this morning, the Lord convicted me about that. That blood is not so precious to me anymore because I'm entertained by it. The more bloody a movie is, the more I want to see. I love vampires. That's my favorite evil villain. They drink blood. It's crazy. I was thinking about that, but blood is precious. And in our passage today, we're going to see just why, how significant it is that as we're in this passage of Jesus, we're talking about a lot of blood, because blood is important. And these verses are bookends. Verse 15 and 22 are bookends that can be read that way. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since the death, has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed of the first covenant. Then jump to verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We see this mention of a new covenant, and then we see a bookend of blood. Because covenants and blood go together. Where there is no covenant... There is no blood, and where there is no blood, there is no covenant. In Leviticus chapter seventeen, you read these interesting words. God yells at a bunch of people. Um, he yells at the Hebrews, and he says this in Leviticus seventeen. I'm going to read it in an unconventional uh, translation, but it's important. Um, it's the Every Fox translation, and it reads this way. And any man, any man of the house of Israel, of the sojourners that sojourn in the midst. In your midst, that eats any blood, I set my face against that person who eats the blood. I will cut him off amid his kin's people. For the life of the flesh, it is in the blood. I myself have given it to you, God, upon the slaughter site to effect ransom for your lives. For the blood, it effects ransom for life. Therefore, I say to the children of Israel, every person among you is not to eat blood. And the sojourner that sojourns in your midst is not to eat blood. And any man, any man of the children of Israel or of the sojourner that sojourns in your midst, who hunts any hunted wild animal or bird that may be eaten, is to pour out its blood and to cover it with the dust. For the life of all flesh, its blood is its life. So I say to the children of Israel, the blood of all flesh you are not to eat, for the life of all flesh, it is its blood. Everyone eating it shall be cut off. Shall be cut off. These are some great verses that God said to the Israelites in the book of Leviticus That the life of all flesh is in the blood. Blood is life. If there's no blood in your body, there's no life. You stop moving. Blood symbolizes life. The life of all flesh is in the blood. And God was letting the Hebrews know that it was significant. And that way back in Leviticus is a setup for where we get to when we talk about Jesus' blood. Under the old covenant, it took the blood of animals to temporarily deal with sin and put it away. Under the new covenant, once for all time, it is going to be the blood of Christ that takes our sin and washes it and removes it away completely from us forever but we've got to recognize just how precious and important the blood is. Even in our culture, we're in danger of a crossless Christianity, one that doesn't involve the blood. We talk about all the people. God has a wonderful plan for your life, and, and he's got this for you and that, and we leave out the cross of Christ. That, that wonderful plan that God has for your life required that his son be crucified and killed and put on the cross And laid in a tomb for three days. That part's being pushed out of the gospel today. But this brings us back to the reality of the gospel that the apostles believed. Blood is life. Life is in the blood. We see something here about Jesus' blood that is different. So, that differs from other blood, and we'll see that as we go along. So it says, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, So that those who are called, those who are called, who are those people? Those are people who believe, who have received. So part of the original audience is the Hebrews that this letter is written to. They have come to Christ. Something interesting has happened. Christ has died. Christ was buried. Christ rose from the tomb. But guess what? The day after Jesus rose, there was still a temple in Jerusalem. There were still people offering animal sacrifices. They could smell them. They could hear the songs and the praises being sung. And these Hebrew Christians needed to know, did they need to go back to the temple? Or could they continue in their worship of Jesus Christ? Is Jesus greater than the temple? That's been the questions that we've been answering as we've been walking through this book of Hebrews. So those who are called, it's the first audience and it's anyone who believes. Anyone who comes into faith. Anyone who puts their faith in this Messiah. Those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance. That's a key word. We see this word eternal a lot, And it's important for multiple reasons. We see eternal coming up in the verses before because our text opens with therefore. So that means it's in reference to what preceded before it. It talks about how Christ through the eternal spirit offered eternal redemption to those who would come to faith in it. That's verse 14. So therefore is in reference to the fact that an eternal Christ offered eternal redemption, and it comes with an eternal inheritance. I want to touch on eternal because I want to pull out a divine attribute of God. I think that we definitely can't miss about Christ. Divine attribute is basically the big term for the characteristics of God. What are some traits of God that distinguish him from everything else and every other God? And since we're looking at the word eternal, i want to pull out that God has a quality of eternality. What does that mean? Eternality. Um, Psalms 90, uh, Psalm 90, verses 1 through 2, says from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Before the mountains were formed, before the earth was made, you alone are God from everlasting to everlasting. So we've got to go a little deep here. We've got to deal with eternality. Eternality means that God is a being who exists outside of time. Time is not like a river that runs at God's feet. It's more like a crinkle in his hand. God is a bigger, he's something, the old word was temporal. He supersedes time. God, time is not something that holds God. God is someone who holds time. He created time. So in Genesis, it opens up with these words. It says, in the beginning. When you get to in the beginning, that's that's where time begins. But before that was a period of time that's not time. (laughs) That would be considered something called eternity past. Before there was time, there was God. After time ends, there will still be God. God as a being is an eternal being. Time is something he created, not something that measures him. Man needed time because we have a span of life and we have to be measured. we measure ourselves in time over changes. We're born, we grow, we get old, and we die. Time. But it's not so for God. Christ comes from a period that precedes time. And because he's an eternal being, he stepped into creation. The verses in Hebrews also later goes on to tell us, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born of the law. Christ is someone who stepped into time. He did not come from time. He was with God in the beginning, before there was a beginning. And because he's an eternal being and possesses eternality, he offers an eternal inheritance. That is one of the beautiful things that gets pulled out for us here when we think about the eternality of Christ and of God. And because he's an eternal person, he has an eternal blood. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. This is deep. This is letting us know that even under the old covenant, when they were sacrificing animals, they were doing something that was pointing to what Christ would do when he came. It said that since the death has occurred, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. It's talking about old people. That Christ's death had a value and a significance that even took care of their past sins. Remember, Christ is eternal, his blood is eternal, and his work is eternal. So Christ died over 2,000 years ago, but his blood still takes care of their sins today, who came 2,000 years later his blood will take care of our sins that will come tomorrow. And if you carry and are sinning 30 years from now, his blood will take care of those sins as well. But he came 2,000 years ago. That's the significance of his eternal blood and his eternal sacrifice. And he's know that Christ's death also took care of the sins that were under the first covenant. Those Hebrews, when they were sacrificing their animals, those animals were a picture of the Christ who was to come. And they were therefore exercising faith in the Christ who was to come and that he would ultimately take away and put away their sins forever. Verse 16, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. So now this author, he's taking us down to the lawyer's office, so to speak. He's going to give us some legal jargon and some legal terms. The text takes a shift in order to make this analogy. But before I, adjourn, it reminds me of a, of actually a joke I heard. There was a man who had a, um, he was a mean old man, mean old snake, and he had a nice lovely wife who was just so dear and sweet, and she loved the Lord, and she was a godly woman, and he knew he was, he had gotten very wealthy, and he was getting old and getting ready to die. He told his dutiful, beloved wife, he said, when I, here's what I want you to do, get all our money and turn it into cash, convert all our assets into cash, and I want you to put it in a big bag and leave it by the window, so when I die, um, I can take it with me. She said, okay, day came, and the, that mean old man died, and that beautiful wife did as, as he asked. She converted all her money. All her assets into money and left it in a bag by the window, and she went to the funeral and she grieved and she came home and saw the bag was still sitting by the window after they had buried her husband. She said, Oh, I should have put it in the basement. <laughs> the man thought he was going to heaven and <laughs> should have put it downstairs, man. So but that's the, the trickiness of a will. It's like that's the reality of, of a will, is that it says these verses. That for where a will is involved, the debt of the one who made it must be established. We're going to the lawyer's office because we're talking about the reality that God has a will. And this analogy that is being used is helping us to understand what the old covenant and new covenant means and how we how we how they come into effect for us. So we know usually when people die, we talk about a will, a last will and testimony. That you have a will and a testament. Basically, what you want to happen with your things when you die. And if you don't have one, you should get one. As Rob mentioned just last week. Because
1: we're getting out of
0: here one way or the other. (laughs) Either the Lord comes back or we're gone. And so you want to have so Uncle Sam will get all your stuff and your family doesn't have a big nice time after you're gone. But basically he says, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. A will doesn't have any effect until the one who made it goes. And the Hebrews author is pointing that out for us. Verse 17. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. He stresses out that point a little bit more. A will needs a force in order to go into effect. The one who made it has to die. Other than that, a will is just a piece of paper. Since it is not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. Verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. So now he's shifting between this word covenant and will. And now, in, as far as Bible study goes, there's a lot of debate about this passage in regards to covenant and will. The same word in Greek is used for covenant as his will in the original text. But translators have recognized that, he's, that the analogy that's being used here is talking about a will. It's talking about a will that someone has to go into effect when they die. And this is important for a Hebrew history. Because Christ has been compared to lots of people in the book of Hebrews. One of the persons that Christ has been compared to in the book of Hebrews as being greater than him is Moses. And Moses, when he gave the first covenant, it came with some benefits. But if you know your Hebrew history, did Moses get to enjoy the benefits that he communicated to the people of God? He did not. Moses said, Moses failed, and Moses died. And God said, come look over at this land. You got going there. they don't get it, but you won't. You will come to die and be with me. And so Moses delivered a will. And then what happened is then Moses had a man who was second in command.
1: So when there's a will, there's
0: a testator. The testator is the one who writes the will a big legal word. The testator is the one. I, Anthony Ward, bequeath all my assets to. Anthony's the testator. Then there are the beneficiaries, the people to whom the will goes, to whom the benefits that Anthony's assets have will receive. Those are the beneficiaries. Moses was the testator, or God is the testator, (laughs) communicating it through Moses is HR block. He's the law office. He communicates. Then you need one more thing you need a execute. A person who's going to make sure that what happens with your will is supposed to happen with your will, happens. You see a lot of that playing. Uh, Leomen Helmsley died, millions of dollars, multi millions of dollars, had children. Um, didn't believe that anything, Um, left money to her brother, and she had this expensive poodle, little teacup poodle, who she felt in her debt she wanted that poodle to continue to live the lifestyle that she had grown him accustomed to while she was alive. This poodle inherited an $8 million statement. And there's an executor who is responsible for making sure that this poodle lives an $8 billion life. He is the executor. So where there's a testator and a will, there's the beneficiaries, the poodle. You need an executor. Going back to Hebrews. So remember it said Moses he communicated the will. He, he had to die his second man in command was Joshua, who serves as an example. Joshua said, okay, tribes of Israel, you get this land, you get this, you get that, you get that, we're going to take the land and then everyone's getting their cut." But in the curious case of Jesus Christ, the one who died also got up to ensure that you got everything that he said you were supposed to get. That's the interesting comparison that's being made about Christ. that Christ died. He had a will of a promise of eternal inheritance for you and die. And he rose from the dead to make sure that he could not only just be the testator, but that he could also be the executor. That's the greatness of God. That is the comparison that the Hebrew has in their mind, as in, because they remember Moses promised us some things and then he died. That was over for Moses. Christ promised us some things but he died, but then he got up. Three days later, to make sure that I would get everything that he promised us. And so verse 18, therefore not even the first covenant was, not, was inaugurated without blood. He goes back to that first covenant because we're still talking about blood. We're still building up to a point that ultimately what this Hebrew author wants them to know in this passage is he wants us to walk away with confidence in the blood. He said, we ultimately have confidence in the blood of Jesus Christ because he who had a will and died rose to execute the affairs of his will. He says, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. Verse 19. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled the book and both both the book itself and all the people. He takes us back to this picture of when Moses inaugurated the tabernacle. And when Moses brought brought the covenant to the people, and he said, take blood, Mix it with water and sprinkle it on the book, the book of the law, where the Ten Commandments and God's laws, all of those ceremonial laws were written at. It's like what we just read in Leviticus 17. He sprinkled that book with blood. And then Moses also sprinkled the people with blood. And then he also sprinkled the tent with blood. And it's like Rob told us last week that there was this temple. Though it was overlaid with gold, it was pretty nasty a little bit, because there was blood everywhere. And that communicates something to us. The fact that even for God to interact with us, he still needed to see blood. Though God wanted to come down and be with the Israelites and Hebrews, he still needed to see blood. Why? The sin is that God. What gets communicated to us is the sinfulness of sin. That sin is that bad, that heinous, that gross, that wicked, that ugly, that it always requires a life. See, when we look in the Bible, there's also this bloody line, is what it can be called. You have to follow the bloody line in the Bible. Because it shows us that the wages of sin is always death, and what is always <coughs> needed to atone for sin a life what is always needed to atone for every single solitary (coughs) sin is a life and the The good news of of Jesus Christ is that he's done he's given his life as a ransom to atone for each and every solitary sin there was blood on the book blood on the people Just sprinkle everywhere so that the first thing that God would see would be the blood. But when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. Verse 20. That's interesting, too, that Moses should say the words, this is the covenant. This is the blood of the covenant that God has commanded for you. This is significant because it lets (laughs) us know that the only way to approach God is by the means that he prescribes. Nobody could approach God based on their own merit or on their own significance or I'm going to get to God this way. I'm going to be the best mom I can be. I'll be the best dad I can be. I'll be the best teacher or whatever. This is going to be the means for me to approach God. No. None of that works. It takes one thing. And that's the thing that's sprinkled all around. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, He sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Interesting. Sprinkle both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. So even under that old covenant, even as they were using the instruments, whatever they used to sprinkle, the bowl that they put the blood in, those things were defiled just by being touched and used by the priests. As soon as they touched it, it became a defiled instrument. And it was in need of being continually cleansed. Because all of that was temporary. temporary. The whole idea of the old covenant is that it was temporary. It only put up with the problem for a moment. It makes it clear in verse 22, Indeed, under the law, take communion, we're reminding ourselves of that very simple fact. That without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And we who are sinners, and we who have sinned, and we who have failed, have a blood that we can run to. Paul even said, do this as often as you like in remembrance of me. When you take the body, when you take the blood, we're reminded, we celebrate the fact that Christ has died and that Christ has risen and that Christ is coming again. That any sin that we might be afraid of coming up to haunt us has been drowned beneath the precious blood of Christ. Never to come to the surface again. Never to be held over our heads. There's an old hymn I love. I've told this story before, and it will close. But when I think about the blood, I always think of this moment that uh, when I was younger and uh, way back in the day, and happened to be a Christian at the time, and um, I fell into sin, left my house one night and went somewhere I wasn't supposed to go, and uh, was creeping out of that place in the wee hours of the morning, me and the other sinners who were doing the same thing, and was on my way home, had to get home to take a shower, to uh, go to work. The sun hadn't even come up. And I remember getting on the bus and the bus was going over a bridge. And I felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. just hit me like a rock. I said, Christian, you know better. What were you doing Just felt like the scum of the earth. Because I was somewhere in no business feeling, doing something. See, that's the good thing about, about Christ is conviction and con- condemnation are two different things. Condemnation says, this is who you are, you're the worst, you're a scumbag, that's all you ever be, that's all you ever do. But conviction says something different. Conviction says, that's not who you are. You had no business being. I was feeling it. And the devil tried to get in it and was trying to hit me with condemnation. And instantly as I was feeling, I said, Lord, I just wish this bus would just drive on this bridge and kill me. Because I feel like the worst person ever. Also, a jerk, because now I want to kill all the other people on the bus, too. we had nothing to do with my sin. Right? But I said, Lord, I, I just want to die. And right when I was feeling that, an old hymn that I used to sing as a child that I love, and it says, There is a fountain filled with blood, drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that flood, loose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I go by. All the sins That hymn was written in the 18th century, and it caused a stir because of that verse. Because Christians said, What? You put me on the same par as the dying thief? But that's the gospel. He said in that moment, God said, Kyle, you're more sinful than you would ever think. But at the same time, you're more loving. That's the gospel truth for all of us, is that our sin will surprise us. But at the same time, we can have confidence in the great, eternal, precious love of Jesus Christ. Amen.